So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Rimsky. I'm Julian Walker. And I'm Dax Devlin Ross. Second co host in two weeks. We'll have another next week as well. So you can stay up to date with us on all of our social media channels, including Facebook, where we still post for some reason, uh, Instagram, <laughs> where Matthew has been posting a lot lately, YouTube, of course, which uh, Julian excerpts a lot of videos on uh, and we are also on patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality where for as little as five dollars a month you can support us as well as get access to our monday bonus episodes which are always fun and exploratory as well as our weekend bonus content conspirituality 56 critical race theory in real life with dax devlin ross in June 2020, equity consultant and journalist Dax Devlin Ross, who you might remember from Conspirituality 4 that very same month, published an essay called A Letter to My White Male Friends of a Certain Age. In it, he applied his decades of experience as a nonprofit executive and program facilitator to have an honest discussion with, as the title suggests, his white male friends. A year later, and the book version of that essay called Letters to Why called Letters to My White Male Friends, has been published by St. Martin's Press. There couldn't be a better time for this conversation, given the heated skirmishes around the meaning and manipulation of critical race theory in our politics. Dax joins this week as a co-host, nearly a year to the day since his last appearance, to discuss the topics in his book, including the many years of lived experiences that cut through the academic rhetoric and political posturing concerning race in America today. I could talk for hours about Dax and his new book. I've actually lived through every single one of his books. And in fact, we were both columnists for the Daily Targum back at Rutgers in the 90s, where he covered the same topics in letters to my white male friends, and I was the religion correspondent. Uh, we first met on the basketball court in 1993, though we really didn't become friends until the end of college. There are still moments in the book from that era that jumped out, like the fact that we both happened to be in the march that shut down Route 18 en route to then-President Fran Lawrence's house, 
two of a few hundred students angered by the fact that Lawrence was giving credence to the bell curve. And ironically, Charles Murray published his latest book, which is also on race, the very same day as Dax's came out. Mm-hmm. So point being, race is and always has been a contentious topic in America and, let's be honest, around the world for as long as humans have been here. Call it tribal warfare before, whatever you'd like. But having lived through so much of this new book with Dax, I'll just say that my life has been made richer, more meaningful, and more honest because of our friendship. Even today, and I know we'll get into critical race theory during this discussion, which is really just the latest iteration in a nation-long conversation that many have tried to ignore, I see so many white people offering monologues without any lived experience of racism on their social media feeds. And while my lived experience of racism has predominantly been with Dax, including the only time I've had a gun pointed in my face— And of course, the St. Thomas incident, which is in the book. It's been enough to believe people when they discuss their problems with encountering racism. And this is not an academic book, even though Dax is a lawyer and could have written it that way. This is a book about living as a black man in America and all that that entails. Our friendship is the most important in my life, not only because Dax is a brother that I love dearly, but also because at every step of the way, it's made me a better person. Now, having also operated a publishing company with Dax for many years, I'll finish this by saying I am very confident that this book will take him places that all of those tens of thousands of journal pages and poems that were only shared between us which at the time were the only eyes willing to give another writer a chance, did not take him. But the reality is that all of those pages are in letter to my white male's friends, and so, so much more. And I could go on and on, like I said, but what really interests me this week is how the book landed with Matthew and Julian, who only know Dax through me. So I want to really have them lead this conversation or else it'll get very esoteric and chummy throughout as it usually is when I talk to Dax. But I do being his closest friend, I do want to point out that there was an error in the book, which I didn't tell him about yet, but the one sentence where I am mentioned, it's about sharing bongs, blunts and boxed wine, which if that is on my gravestone, I am great with. (laughs) But I want to point out that it was Carlo Rossi jugged wine. (laughs) And for the poet that you are, Dax, I know you wanted another B in there, so you went with boxed wine, but let's be honest, it was glassed wine. $10 a gallon (laughs) and many, many nights with it. (laughs) Now that said, I want to punt it to Julian to lead this conversation. Hi, Dax. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Your book weaves very skillfully between an intimate memoir and the broader political and even legislative history of race in America. I want to start with your opening section, which includes your coming-of-age story. You describe growing up in the well-to-do D.C. neighborhood of Shepherd Park in the quite protected bubble created by what you call the dozens and dozens of Huxtable-like families around you. And you speak of vacationing in Martha's Vineyard and Jamaica. And then the pride of getting accepted into the prestigious Quaker school Sidwell. Now, once at that school... 
You talk about the complete lack of any open and direct addressing of contemporary racial, racial issues, even as you sat in the classroom and listened to discussion of texts like To Kill a Mockingbird. And you specifically mentioned big national news stories involving black men falsely accused of rape and murder happening in a kind of compartmentalized parallel reality as your classmates and teacher obliviously work their way through abstract discussions of Shakespeare's Othello, right? You say the silences around race penetrated the classrooms. When it was discussed, slavery was referred to euphemistically as the peculiar institution. Now, I'm just curious, what dawning realization were you grappling with internally at that time? Well, first of all, I I just want to thank both of you for... uh, the introductions. Um, it means as a writer and as Derek has already pointed out, you know, you just to have people take your work seriously and to, um, and to contend with the ideas that you're trying to communicate is incredibly meaningful, you know? So just thank you both. Thank all three of you for having me on the show today and sharing your audience with me for a little bit of time. Um, you know, to answer the question, I think you know, there is no, you don't, uh, you, you don't have words for it at that age. Um, in many respects, you know, the, the, the thing that you're wrestling with is, is, is an inchoate feeling and sense of shrinking in space and time and almost like getting smaller and smaller in there. And I, and I do use this sort of metaphor of size in the shrinking as a really intentional visual metaphor for people because I talk about having entered that place into that school that I do care deeply for and I do still have lots of strong relationships with and I don't want to make it seem as though I had an all bad experience because that's not what it was. But I do remember entering that space as a very kind of vivacious young person. As a person who was, ex- was expressive, I loved to be in plays. I just, I, I wasn't self-conscious of my, I wasn't this sort of overly self-conscious being and really kind of deeply in this sort of space where I was you know, always think about my actions. But when you're in an environment where um, you are clearly the minority and um, it is very evident that we're having conversations about and specifically text that has been already um, identified and defined as the sacred text, the text of the most important, the things that cannot be touched, they're sacrosanct. And you understand and see that you don't show up in there and your experience doesn't show up in there. And for me, because my experience had been so rich and because I had had such a powerful black experience growing up in D.C., in the communities that I'd grown up in, and it felt so validated in that world, it was almost like perplexing and confusing in the sense that how do we not how do we not find time and space to reckon with this and so I think for me, it's this, the, the, it's the lack of language, the inability to articulate it, which is so powerful for a 13-year-old, 14-year-old. And, and so therefore, what you end up doing is you start to kind of point inward to yourself and assume that something is, is about you. It's somehow you are, there's an absence or a lack in you. And I know that some of my friends, I don't know if my friends, some people, I, they struggle with that. And so they either decide to in, purely invisibilize themselves, meaning purely assimilate in that environment. And they kind of, you know, just sort of identify wholly and fully and completely with that. Or they, you know, rebel hard against it. And I did have a, there were a lot of students in that school who who did rebel against it. And I remember by the time we got to high school and Rodney King happens, you do see a a strong contingent of black students at the school who are speaking out. But then you have kids like me who I think um, I wasn't, I was always smart, but I wasn't necessarily an um, 
an intellectual at that point in my life. I wouldn't consider myself. So I think I, I ended up filtering all of that into all of that angst, if you will, into sports, into the social, social landscape, because that was where I was seen. And in those kinds of environments, we see it over and over again. Me being a young black man who has some sort of athletic ability, if you're able to perform in that way, that's where you start to get validation. And as a young person, you go there, you go there more because we're all looking for validation. So I would say that's how I processed it initially. Yeah, I, I have a, a perfect segue from there, but I wanted to, to ask you first, uh, you, you talk about how for both you and your white fellow students, the normalized absence of black authority figures and yet the prevalence of subservient people of color has two very different types of impact. You know, this book was written in many ways intentionally to explore my my parts of my experience growing up with the intention of helping people reflect on theirs. So I always tell people, this is a small book. This isn't a tome. This isn't me saying, here is my life story. I wanted to choose parts that would, that would encourage, engage, and maybe even inspire people to do some of their own reflection. And so what I experienced at Sidwell is what I think a lot of people experience, whether it's a private school or not, um, is the case that their experience with black authority figures, quote unquote, educators, specifically in the educational context, is quite often very limited. Even when I became a teacher, the, the norm was for black men in particular, you get pushed into becoming a dean. Right. So that's a, an authority figure. Yes, but it is not a figure that is authority of expertise in the classroom. And, and because this country places so much value and such a premium on intellectual capability and ability to not have formative experiences where you're interacting with Black folks who are demonstrating expertise over subject matter, I think has real latent effects on people's ability to embrace and accept Black people as intellectual and expertise and as, as holders of intellectual expertise in the professional space. So therefore, we see lots of pushback around that in corporate spaces, institutions, challenging people's credentials. We saw when Nicole Hannah-Jones like this constantly saying that what you have is not good. It's like, that's cool. But it's not what it needs to be. And that's a normalized thing that I think when you have a collective of people, generations of people growing up without those kinds of intimate experiences early on, it can lead you to have not necessarily, quote unquote, racist views, but it's that problem that we've identified in the last year, these sort of non-racist notions that um, by being non-racist or not racist, that is enough. So I am not actively prejudiced. But I am not actively reflecting on and engaging with the fact that my life has had absence of color in particular spaces of, of authority and expertise mm. that are so important in this society. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, uh, to, to go back to where we were, you, you transition into, into sports, right? Into, into getting validation and acceptance for your athletic abilities. I, I, I want to hear about your realization because this, this really struck me as, a, as a, someone who grew up in South Africa. This really struck me. When, when you go at the start of eighth grade and play basketball with the Kingman Pythons, it sounded to me like you were caught between two worlds and belonging to neither. Is that how that was for you? I'd actually say it was three worlds. Three worlds. And I actually started to think of it as my relationship to DC was a triangle. Because even the way the city is designed, I lived uptown. I went to school sort of like west of the Rock Creek Park. So I went to school and then I played basketball downtown. And so in the course of any given day, I was shuttling from neighborhood 
to school, to school downtown, back up to neighborhood. And to your point, I think ac- accurately put, at a certain point, you felt you feel like you have you're not and you're not of any of those places. Mm-hmm. I did not know that that would have value for me later on in life. Of mm-hmm, course, mm-hmm. the ability to navigate multiple spaces. But as a young person, it does present, I think, some sort of identity. Um, I don't know if crisis is the word, yeah. but identity challenges. Yeah. So yes, that was absolutely the experience. The way I read it was that at Sidwell, you're you're welcomed into this world, but you don't see yourself anywhere, and no one is supporting you in dealing with the realities of your internal sort of awakening to to the reality of the situation. And then you go and play with this basketball team where they're not accepting you because you're the kid who's who's going to that fancy school and you've been hanging out with all these white people. Yeah. 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 And that's a, and that's a hell of a thing that I think a lot of, I think a lot of young people, um, a lot of my friends, at least few of us, at least in different, different iterations of it experience that displacement, which I often think is like a kind of level of consciousness, consciousness and reckoning that, that I think my white peers, it's just hard for them to, to understand that at that young of an age, I'm negotiating identity on multiple levels so that I'm trying to fit into this environment and succeed. I'm trying, then I have to be black with mm-hmm. my boys. And when I'm playing ball, it's like they're questioning the authenticity of my, and rightfully so on the, to the level, to the extent that, to the extent that they don't have those experiences and they're wondering why I'm different. You know, when my dad picks me up in his car and they're like, yo, why, you know, I never forget they would say to me like, oh, you're on this team because your dad paid for you to be on this team. Uh, and then, and then when we would get dropped off at night, I would be so ashamed of where I lived. And like, you know, I have to be ashamed of living in a house and my home that I grew up in because I know when my friends, they have to keep drive that the, 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 the bus would keep going farther downtown and their experience was very different. And, and I don't have the language to understand that or, or sort of extend myself and they need to do they. Yeah. Yeah. So last question before I I hand you over to Matthew, Uh, you write about a a really key moment and Derek brought it up uh, in terms of your political consciousness, right? Being at Rutgers. And if I'm remembering correctly, the head of the university decides to host Charles Murray, who at that time had recently published a bell curve. Tell us more about that. Well, so, so just, so, so factually what had happened, what, what had happened was, um, so what took place was um, the book was published and I want to say the book was published in the summer, late summer of 94. Um, that's between Derek and my, our second, our first year of college. We, we, we arrived back on campus. The book is published around that time. That October, President Lawrence, the university president at the time, was at a board of trustees meeting um, in which he made a remark to the effect of black students not being able to perform uh, up to the standards of their counterparts on on these standardized tests. He, of course, meant it as a way to say, I think later on, contextually, he was trying to communicate. And that's why we need to make sure that we are continuing to do our work to ensure ensure diversity. That's where he explained it later on. But it doesn't come out, that statement doesn't come out until the eve of Black History Month. So that's people, somebody had that information, knew about it and waited until the end of January. And I'll never forget this, to publish a story about that. And then that's sort of when things kind of trigger off because he then has to explain what were you thinking? And that's where you find there was a New York Times article in which he says, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. I had been reading reviews of Charles Murray's book at the time. And so that's where the connection was made directly that he was, he had, again, we talk about how ideas enter our minds. 
when and how they start to kind of, even if we're not consciously thinking and reflecting on how they're penetrating our consciousness, they are. And clearly in that instance, that happened and it caused huge, obviously, backlash on campus. And the idea from Murray, just to be clear, is is that uh, IQ has has some racial vector about it. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. Why that matters to his argument, at least the argument he was making at that time was our investments in social programs are useless because they will not change these fundamental factors. You know, and that's the gross, the grotesqueness of it is that it was being used as a political device. He was using pseudoscience as a political device. And that is so deeply troubling about it. I also just want to point out the environment because that plays a role. Dax and I both lived on the Livingston campus. Livingston was created as a separate college as part of the Rutgers ecosystem in the late 60s, specifically to facilitate predominantly minority students. And it was one of the most racially diverse campuses in the country at that time. It was also designed by a prison architect, specifically. And so when you were in the quads where we lived, they're underground. You can connect the a lot of the campus underground, but there were riot-proof doors wow. under there. And all the doors were super heavy. And the rooms were designed like prison cells. And that, that was where we, I lived for two years. I think Dax yeah. lived for two years until yeah. we went off campus. But yeah. uh, that, that, so imagine that being your collegiate mindset and environment that you live in. And then mm-hmm. Lawrence comes out with that. So mm-hmm. it was, it was definitely, there were a lot of protests at that time at yeah. that campus. And so hence yeah. the word panopticon, right? This, the sense that you can be, you can be seen, oh, yeah. right? From, from yeah. wherever you are, you oh, can yeah. be observed and controlled. It was also in the middle of an ecological preserve. And so you had to take a bus to get there from the main campus. So in it was, it was isolated. All the other campuses were even Bush was much more accessible. This was put out as far from the campus as possible in the middle of an ecological preserve, as well as the commuting park, the commuter parking lots. So on all four sides of the campus, you had a lot of space that separated so that you could easily be identified if you were trying to escape. It was, it was a real mind trip. You know, I, I didn't know all of that. And I'm sorry to, to keep using time here, Matthew. I know you want to jump in, but that you just described Soweto. Mm. You just mm. described the way Soweto mm. was built on a much larger scale, mm. but controlled entrances and exits. Yeah. Ability to see what's going on at all times, yep. shut things down when they need to be, you know, send in the troops when necessary. So that is, mm. that's hitting me hard. Well, you think about that's not that different necessarily, even then, you know, um, public, pro- we call them projects in, in places like New York, like the design of those places in many ways is always around the facilitation of ingress and egress of the people who need to be able to get in, isolate, shut down and contain. Um, they're containment facilities in many respects, right? They're like basically containment facilities. They're designed in that way and very intentionally. Dax, since you, um, we began with some of your experiences at Sidwell, yeah. uh, I have a couple of questions related to that. But before that, I, I wanted to roll back and embarrass you with a little review because uh, in general, this is what I have to say about the book, that I really cherished it. Uh, Derek and Julian uh, know that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a hard ass on books. Um, I basically don't like much of what I read. So, I, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not this liking is a your, rare positive review. Right? And I, I'm not, I'm not liking this book because I think it, I should. Um, you know, I'm liking it. Be, I'm loving it because you really pulled off a rich and complex 
and yet really direct, I would call it a landscape painting of mm. the, the flatness and the failure of white liberalism, mm. of the white imagination. Mm. And also I would say of, of, of white spirituality. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Mm. You do it as, as um, Julian suggested with zero jargon, uh, the voice is open and approachable. You don't pander. Uh, you write as a friend, but not to make friends. Mm. Um, or at least, or at least you write with boundaries that say solidarity or friendship is possible between white men and black people if it's honest and earned. And, you know, while I describe it as a landscape painting, um, there are these abstract brush strokes of sunlight that like slantian, um, and it gives the book the dimension of a kind of spiritual appeal without explicitly sourcing the kinds of theological themes that I often associate with black liberation writing, mm. uh, except I guess for Audre Lorde and James Baldwin, people like that. So I'll, I'll come back to that, um, to that bit in the end, but I wanted to start with, with two thoughts about, um, your description of, uh, Sidwell and being, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. And you said that you didn't have the words at the time. And I want to suggest that like you, you had a very powerful memory, however, because I think you've been able to um, recall certain impressions that are really stunning. This one um, you write, I remember watching my white classmates move through the halls with such ease and thinking that like with such ease and thinking that like me, they were all of 12 yet seemed to know their destiny was to rule one day. I remember those feelings so distinctly, you know, um, and so much of it is about like how an atmosphere can reinforce, you know, and I, and I don't know if privilege is absolutely the right word. I mean, I think it's, there was this absolute sense amongst so many of my students. Um, and because it had not, there, there was no questioning and sort of inner conflict. Now I'm, I don't want to sort of gloss over the complexities of their experiences. And I know a lot of folks had really complex experiences because some of my classmates, you know, they were scholarship kids and like it was, but I'm, but I, but I want to say by and large, um, there was this, there's just a level of confidence that, that's, that's bred in, that, in those kinds of environments. And that confidence um, allows for people, and as I talk about in the classroom experience, to, and you've probably all encountered people like this, who you can't imagine actually know exactly what they're talking about, when, but when they speak it, but when they communicate it, there's a level of certainty that you just find is more challenging to challenge than you might otherwise think. Like, because they just, there isn't a sense of doubt when that's articulated. There's a sense of, of this is truth. And, and I'm willing to actually stand on that truth. So yes. And, and I don't think I even necessarily envied it. I marveled at it. It wasn't like a thing I was jealous of, but I just was like, wow. <laughs> did you ever, did you ever have the feeling when you watched that confidence in performance that you were watching a bullshitter though? I mean, I think as you get older, as I got into yeah. the classroom, so, so I would say like, you know, your first days, everybody's kind of figuring it out, but what you encounter and what I think I see a lot in the corporate world, I see a lot in the business world is that there are people who have mastered the art of, of, of BS. I mean, these people, just like anybody else, my classmates didn't do their homework sometimes, just like anybody else, they didn't have the actual answer, but what they were able to do and what I think we were encouraged to do was to still, you know, 
um, I don't want to say fake it till you make it, but but it was to, to assert some form of authority and agency, even when you don't necessarily have you know, clarity or actual sort of um, substance to offer into a, con- to a particular conversation. I think I'm I'm focusing in on it because um, there are so many passages in the book that point to this mindset and this bearing in the world as being um, as depriving the person of a kind of dignity, uh, the dignity that would come with intellectual humility or or self consideration or just or just empathy, and and I think as I read the book, I kept coming back to that line and thinking about the twelve year old boys who felt that they were going to rule the world, and when they have their complex experiences, I'm. I have the sense that for many of them, it's psychologically expensive to have that self-perception, to keep it going, to continually be hyper-vigilant about their own perfection or their own entitlement, uh, to, to um, you know, they're constantly focused on their contested positions and their own dominance hierarchies. And so, and that's very narrow. And so it's really little wonder what, that when, when, you're, when your white fellow students are so preoccupied with what I would say sometimes is a faked confidence that there's no room for historical vision, for empathy, for really challenging, you know, the the, the basis of self-perception. Uh, things like the meritocracy, like so. So that's that's something Man, that that no, came you, up. You just you just. I think you, so when I and I'm really grasping what you're talking, what you were mentioning, in sort of the opening. When I say the harm, and people, and I want to be clear, there's different forms of harm that people can experience because of their deprivation of deeper relationship with people who have different pigmentation, right? Some folks can write about it from a policy standpoint, meaning like there are definite points in our American story where folks would rather cut off their nose to spite their face when it comes to just like the the distribution of resources, because, you know, we can look at the ACA, we can look at a number of things and people, we can see very substantive, practical ways in which people operate against their interests. But what you're getting at and what I've also really tried to just try to drill down on is, um, is there's a um, there's a level of like a, even even sort of naturalistic joy and and, a, and even a kind of uh, exploratory wonder that isn't allowed for in that environment where there's ultra where, where competitive where the sort of notion of of competition and the notion of supremacy and superiority are so highly prioritized and valued. To me, that's a deprivation because you don't allow, you're not allowing in space for, a, you know, for your journey to deviate and for your journey to go to do the wandering path that needs, that is required and necessary sometimes for the kind of growth that you want to take place, which is why I think so many folks are coming to these kinds of awakenings for themselves in middle, midlife, you know, yeah. to, because it's the case that their journey has been so sort of in many ways lockstep with what has been defined as the sort of um, uh, the, sort of the key definers and characteristics of success. And those tend to not have anything to do with, you know, walking, walking your own walk or deviating from the path. So I do think that deprivation is spiritual. I do think it is, it is existential. And I do think that it is one in which, you know, you, you, you end up really not, like I have friends who grew up in DC, I imagine, and don't really know what the city was they grew up in. For me to tell them stories of black DC, that is an open, it's a revelation to them. And it's like, damn, man, like 
you know, that's a wild thing to me that you that that part of our city, which is so much a part of our city, felt like it was not a part of your journey and your experience here. And that therefore you devalued it or therefore just didn't seem that it had any worth in your journey or had any value to add to your experience and what that could have done for you, what that could have added to your life, how that could have made you more made you a more joyful person. That's what I want people to think about is that there's often this sense that when we add, when we try to, when we center conversations around race, it's this notion of, of, of I'm going to lose something. Something's going to be taken from me. And even when I see people enter conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, it's so much, oh God, uh, I don't want to do this. This is going to be horrible. Uh, I'm like, wow, you know what? The people I work with and do this work, these are the most joyful people I know. They're the most like open, curious, interesting, like why, why do you assume that this is going to be such a negative journey just because it's going to ask you to do some kind of reflection? Well, I think that really cuts to the heart of something as we look at how diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings have become part of this focal point of a moral panic. Uh, because that's exactly what's on offer. It's something very tender and something very vulnerable. And it can feel revelatory in the moment uh, that in which it's broached by the organization that brings the trainer in, and you know th- there's a there's a there's a existential and therapeutic and I would say spiritual dimension to it that people just aren't prepared for uh, and have to you know not to make excuses but would probably do well to be eased into or to get into the mindset of oh my gosh I have to I have to reconsider my interdependence with all living beings actually <laughs> in order in order to in order to to start to understand what's on offer well, here that's, but that's even why the book is designed the way it is like yeah it's that I want to walk you up to the place. So many of us want to just get to the action, want to go and do the thing, get to the work. And I want folks to know that, and I even do this in my own work in facilitative spaces, is that I'm not going to start with a conversation about structural racism. Actually, that's not going to be where we begin on day one, really. We need to calibrate and do some work internally and do some reflection work and do some journey work before we get to understand and think about systems and how they operate. Because if you just come to be with, and we see it in, these na- in our national discourse, if you approach people with a conversation around systems, they, sh- they often will shut down because quite often it's very difficult to grasp how these systems operate and how you might be a participant within them and benefit from them without really having had anything to do with designing them or sustaining them. But you just, by virtue of who you are, how you present, you're able to benefit from them. And I think that's, so to start in that place, people I think are going to reject it. They are going to have resistance to it, but that's why it's valuable and important to begin people's journey with just like some self-work. Let's look at your life. Well, and in, in a way, if there is that, that immediate experience of rejection, I, I wonder how much of the time that is counterproductive. Yeah. If right in, in terms mm-hmm. of just like not not getting it at all, not yeah. getting what the what the deeper point is. Yeah. And I think that there is some. So I don't. So I think that all I think all trainings and all trainings and all trainers are not not built the same. It's like with anything else. You know, it's not all cars aren't the same. All televisions, all everything are not the same. And I think sometimes there's a notion that there isn't um, there aren't sort of levels and sort of 
um, even styles and approaches that are more appropriate for certain environments, certain settings, certain people. Like I would not necessarily, I would by no means use the same tools and techniques that I would necessarily for young people that I would for more mature people, people who are more advanced in their work. I have a different starting point than I would with people who are clearly having a beginning part of their journey. So there's like, but we talk about it in our national discourse as if it's a blunt object, as if it's just this one thing that is used and done and all of it just needs to go away. Because and in, in the way people cherry pick, because that's what people tend to do. They just cherry pick the way people cherry pick information. They find the most incendiary and they decontextualize it. They find the most incendiary piece of, of, of whatever they can find, whether it's a reading or an excerpt from some training that they heard about by somebody else. And they put it presented to the sort of willing public who's already been primed who's already been primed to sort of have this, you know, to, to have an association, a negative association with it. And it's like giving meat to the, you know, and people just go after it. So I, I like to contextualize everything because I said that we are creatures of context. We need to have context is always part of our, part of the story that we're telling at any given moment in time. And that helps us understand it and make sense of it in new ways. So, yeah. I have I have one more question about childhood stuff because I'm sure we're going to get more into DEI and, yeah. and so on. Um, I think one of the most stunning uh, passages for me in this book was your description, probably during the Sidwell years, of visiting the homes of your white friends. And I have a quote here, and I'd like to just read it because it's kind of amazing. Um, Roaming through the homes of my white friends was its own education. The homes that I grew up in were equally adorned with family photos, art, and books. But I was accustomed to black faces smiling at me, black and African art in the halls, once enslaved ancestors and freedom fighters on the walls, black authors on the shelves, and black music in the air. More than anything, though, those homes gave me a sense of purpose and pride, a connection to the broader black diasporic family and the struggles we had endured and overcome. I never felt that sense of communal pride in the homes of my white friends. The art was awe-inducing, but I hungered to learn something important about what my friends believed and how they felt about the world, yet I couldn't seem to penetrate beyond the surfaces surrounding me. I couldn't look at the photographs on the walls and gain a better understanding of where their people came from and what they'd gone through to get here. This isn't a judgment, and I hope it doesn't come off that way. It doesn't, by the way. Uh, it was my experience. From what I saw, art, literature, music, even family meant something different to you than me. My parents needed to counteract America's chronic subordination of the black experience. Outside of our brief sanitized studies of slavery, the Civil War, Jim Crow, and civil rights, we weren't taught about our journey in America, let alone in the world at large. Our parents' solution was to turn our homes into African-American shrines, museums, and music halls. The parents of my white friends didn't have to instill their kids with a sense of white identity and self-esteem at home. The privilege of supremacy is silence. White superiority is ingrained in the unspoken ideology and institutional prerogatives that guide our lives. Therefore, white parents were free, as in unchallenged, to express their individuality and unique sensibility, their personal aesthetic tastes and preferences, if you will, without ever having to interrogate why, as free-thinking people, most of the authors on their shelves and artists on their walls were white." Okay. So <laughs> you might want to consider staying with this writing thing. I think, I think you're on, you're onto yeah. something here. <laughs> yeah. So my first question is, 
Um, did any of your white friends roam around your home? So I would say that growing up, if I'm just talking about my Sidwell experience in a singular way, what I found and I encountered was that, at least for me, there wasn't a kind of reciprocity around going into my coming into my world as it was going in, into their world. And I think that happens a lot. Like I, I often joke about, you know, when I was younger, like we think about dating across dating across race typically means that the black, if, I, if it's whoever the sort of, if I was a black man dating a white woman, it would mean I'm going to enter her world usually. And I'm going to have to experience an immersion in that into the white world. I think that's part of, again, the benefit of privilege is that the assumption is that the world to which in which we are going to immerse ourselves is going to end up being the one that has been normed for us. And the default for that is white. And so absolutely it's the case that I was invited to my friends' houses in their homes. But I felt as though like. It just wasn't even a th- an option. And I don't know. And I, and I look back and I take some, I'm like, maybe I should take some responsibility for it too. Cause maybe I could have been, I could have taken more effort and put more effort and energy into inviting people into my world. But it seemed as though the sort of energy, the flow, the way it worked, it, it was us in their world. And I want to give you something that, just as an example, like a friend of mine sent me a high school uh, uh, prom picture the other day. And it was so interesting because the friend who sent it to me was, um, was my black was a black friend of mine. We had gone to middle. We went to high school together, and we went. He and I, and his girlfriend and my girlfriend, we, we went to prom together. He he at the time was living with one of our white um, one of our white classmates. Whole other story why he was living with them, but that was what it was. And my so therefore his white our white classmate who was also our friend, but you know to a lesser degree, but still a friend. He and his friends were also at the house that night before prom, so we all took a picture together. Meaning us four, the four, us four black, us two, us the four, the four black folks, the couple, two couples, and the white couples, and then we all got into cars and went to different places for dinner, and then we sort of found each other, and it was, and I think I was like, what the fuck? How uh-huh. on earth was it the case that we just there was no intentional immersion in that moment? It was like you go your way, I'm going to go my way, and we're on the same porch, and we're, we have the same destination in mind. What I say in that is that I think like. I don't know how much of a sense of curiosity there was about my world. Mm-hmm. I right. don't know if there was a lot of curiosity about the or world. Or valuing. Or valuing of what it was. I was entering their space. I was coming to their it's, I, I, I would imagine that it's not just uh, curiosity, but the sense amongst the white friends that they would be encountering history that they would be encountering a moral universe. Uh, maybe that's a little bit overstated, but I, I certainly have, I have the sense as a boy that, you know, amongst the black friends that I had, that I didn't go to visit their houses either. Uh, but I had the sense that if I did, I would be in a different place and it would be, a, it would, I would be like traveling in my own country or something like that. But I want to come back to the emptiness of your, the blankness of the homes that you were visiting, because um, I, I really think they express something about the, the emptiness of the dominant life or the the sort of dominant culture's life that is so ubiquitous that it becomes invisible to those who are using it um you know you're very you're actually flattering uh or at least you 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 are in your boy's voice about the the art was awe inspiring um but 
you know, and you write that, that therefore the white parents were free as an unchallenged to express their individuality and unique sensibility, their personal aesthetic tastes and preferences, if you will. Yes, perhaps also, but there's also an aspect of that that's totally a fucking mirage because the mm. default of the culture is just consumerism. They don't, the, 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 the corollary of not having to stock the house with evidence of your history and your lineage and your moral gravitas is that you're just blown by the wind with regard to whatever the the decor is of the time there's a there's a vacuum of material gravity is, is that kind of the 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 result of a certain level of privilege and, and dominance that your your cult the, there there is not a need for a communal lived experience that has some kind of history and some set of values associated with it that have been hard won that where you've had solidarity with one another and you have icons that really represent something meaningful so I used one of the most one of one of the most like uh, haunting questions uh, that came up over and over again uh, when I was a child was where are you from or where is your mm. family from and I couldn't mm. I never had an answer for that uh, there is there is uh, there is Germanic Polish uh, heritage on my father's side there is Scots Irish heritage on my mother's side uh, but as a white person I kind of come from everywhere and that means that I don't really come from anywhere at the same time and so even like in a in a progressive uh i would say um not anti-racist but certainly racially aware household mm -hmm. that i grew mm -hmm. up in mm -hmm. the writers on like the writers didn't have to be right like, like the books on the shelves didn't have to be white uh, but if we had James Baldwin or Richard Wright on the shelves, it was part of a kind of cultural tourism. It wasn't about like, it wasn't like I, I needed this to help me survive. Uh, so, so th there, it's really weird because, because, because I, I kind of long to see your childhood home like that and to have the sense of, um, uh, what it, what it would be like to, to know, where one is yeah. from and what and excellent i mean for me like growing up there was a there was a kaleidoscopic painting you know that my father had of malcolm x and i thought it was him for when i was really i thought it was my dad but right. like the fact of that is there present like you know we talk about in so that's a that's a symbol and a signal that's sent to me there was i remember another there was another picture of painting a sort of at the time in the 70s there was this kind of the, i forgot the kind of the style that was very prevalent at the time but it was like a cloth kind of era these sort of cloth but it was this black mother holding her baby and it was like this it's like this these sort of they were they were of those times and in many ways it might be considered like very kind of time bound art you know, it may not have this sort of quote unquote timelessness, but at the same time, for me, it was affirmational in all these ways that I didn't have to, I didn't, I didn't consider the fact that those were very intentional choices that were being made so that I grew up because I'm doing it now with my own daughter, that I grew up and in a way that felt that I was being filled up so that when I walked out into the world and I went to the National Gallery of Art down the way and I went to such a Smithsonian's and I didn't see stuff like that, I wasn't wondering where I belonged and whether or not I had a story that was connected more to the larger narrative. So, yeah. Yeah. I see you, Julie. Yeah. I just I, I, I just found something out this morning that blew my mind. And I wonder if you guys had seen anything about it. Do you know that Questlove has this new uh, movie that's coming out that is from the Harlem Culture Festival that happened in 1969, I think over multiple weekends was the impression. And and 
it's just like not something that's been on the on the landscape in terms of when we think about that period of time. It blew, and just seeing some of the footage, I'm like, this is amazing. How come I never knew How about this? I never. How come I? I'm like that's what that's like the that's like the refrain of this era right now. Yeah when it comes to specifically things having to do with the black experience, like how come I never, yeah. Where, why was this not? And, and the thing is it's stars, you know, it's James Brown, it's BB King, yeah. it's Gladys Knight and the Pips, it's Nina Simone. It's all of these incredible black artists, but because it was all black artists in Harlem, so it's like you see, you see the Woodstock movie ad yeah. nauseum. Like you've, never, you've, ne- <laughs> well, you've never seen this. Yeah. You've never seen yeah. it, right? It's like this, what the, these were the people who were fighting for the revolution with their, you know, with their LSD and their, their body paint. Yeah. Meanwhile, here's, here's this no, other thing. Stax records did a really amazing, there's a documentary that came out a few years ago that on Stax records. They had like this sort of similar outdoor festival. I think it was in the Bay uh, in Oakland. So these, these were affairs that were clearly significant and symbolic to, um, to sort of black liberation that have been in many ways just sort of distant, sort of, you know, distance from the story because what we get and what we saw and what I was educated around was a very much a sanitized, milk toast, watered down version of our story, which was, which was designed in many ways to appease white people. And that's why I talk about the Clarence Thomas piece in the book very much. I want people to really understand and sit with the fact that, you know, that was for when we think about these issues like that was that was for white people like Clarence Thomas was nominated and he became a not for black people. It was for because it needed you needed to be able to feel like you could there could be a black Republican in this on in the highest court of the land that would demonstrate that we were somehow moving forward in race like that was the mindset. Black Republican is progress somehow. I wanted to ask you about that because you highlight the important differences between the appointments of Clarence Thomas and Thurgood Marshall. Uh, and, and, and as part of your correcting, as you just did, the impression that Thomas represents some kind of victorious example of equal opportunity, right? That here's this Republican black judge. Yeah. I mean, and you think about like just what I also want. And that's why I wanted to get that was a very important chapter or at least letter to kind of connect to the later the later chapter, the culture of disbelief, because. So much of the pushback, even in that moment, came from people who would know better than anybody else whether this is a qualified candidate for this role. Meaning, like, if you have every major and significant um, sort of organizing body that represents the interests of the people that, of, you know, the black folks, the people, working people, saying, this is not the guy. Even by your own standards, he's not the guy. And you still press forward. That to me says something about just your both your unwillingness and disbelief in our in our experience and our valid, but in our in our you know the validity of our, our perception. But your own prerogatives are the ones that drive and define everyone else's experience of things. And you will change the rules when it is when it is convenient and important and valuable for you. And we see you. We see that and we've always seen it. And now we have an opportunity to tell you about it, not so that we can shame, so that we can start to be more honest with one another, right? Like Power is a power, power, power. Someone asked me last night in the conversation, like, hey, you, you talk, you, there's a line in the book that's like, you know, everyone, white men are everyone's, um, you know, everyone's, you know, target, target, no one's focus. You know, I wanted to be very clear about that. And I see you laughing at it. I wanted to be clear. It's like, you know, people, we act like when we have these conversations, let's look at the, you know, if you look at every major corp- corporation in this country, country, we look at like still the Senate. We still, I mean, it's still a predominantly white male led country. And yet we don't have a direct conversation with white men. And it seems odd to me mm-hmm. that we don't. You know, I'm I, laughing. 
I'm I'm laughing just because on my screen right now I have the quote I write the letters herein to my white male friends because you are everyone's target but no one's focus and I wanted to ask you about that but I'll let you leave. Yeah. go. Right. Well, I you know I wanted to just say that having all of these data points that you that you bring in uh, uh, really helpful in terms of getting getting my head around uh, systemic racism with with a little more clarity, right? I really appreciated how your your legal acumen and scholarship came into play and how you reference specific really important cases. Um, it connects the dots, I think, very starkly. Can can you talk to us about uh, the 1976 Washington versus Davis case? Is that oh, like right. easy to pull up? I mean, yeah. I mean, this one is incredibly valuable and important, you know, and it's really complex. And I think the most significant aspect of it, to my mind, is of course the fact that here was it. Here was it. So it was set in Washington. It was. It, it stems from a um, Washington D.C. Police Department police force at the time. And at the time, there was, you know, a disproportionate number of the police officers in Washington, D.C., which at that, t- at that time were um, were white. And so it, it came down to this test that was the qualifying test for um, being able to become a police officer. And so someone, Davis, he, um, among others, um, took the test. Black man was not able to pass the test, and he then therefore challenged the validity of the test. And this has become this has become more of a sort of prevalent thing. I think it's happened with the SAT and other the culturally. This is before I think we were really defining things as potentially culturally biased. But there were certain ex- certain questions that were being asked, you know, on the test that were clearly ones that you would need to have some very specific cultural experiences that had nothing to do with policing. Nothing whatsoever doing with policing, but that would have everything to do with you. Have you had experiences like in, in, in the woods and, and hiking and or like, you know, being a woodsman, like w- things that you would know that would that that predominantly black like folks, black folks who grow and living in inner cities might not have access to the information. And somehow it lands on a test. But the Supreme Court actually rules that this is OK that these kinds of questions are fine on the test. And that actually sets a precedent for how we're going to deal with these equal protection claims from, for, year, for many years moving forward, and specifically how we're going to deal with racial discrimination claims. Such that, you know, it is beca- it beca- when you fast forward a decade from there, that is the fundamental basis for, um, you know, for the McCleskey versus Kent de- decision. Like that, 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 the Washington versus Davis becomes a, a sort of precursor for what we see happening a decade later when you have this poor guy, Warren McCleskey, who's got every bit of proof in the world that if you are black, you are going to be, you're going to have, you're going to face the death penalty and you're going to face the capital punishment trial. You're going to be charged. Every, every, and, and David Baldus, who's, you know, this phenomenal, um, statistician had, you know, run this in this regression analysis that demonstrated that over this, you know, 30 year period, predominantly black folks were being, you know, sentenced to death. So it, it just what it means is that this, this, this the Supreme Court is a foundational space where we where we see this sort of fulcrum kind of constantly being sort of pivoting. And, and I, it's what I argue as a lawyer, even though I didn't love law school, we have to be able to reckon with and deal with the fact that it has played a significant part in both facilitating and sustaining systemic racism. And therefore we have to get at the Supreme Court, have to get at court decisions if we have any hope at all of really addressing specifically issues having to deal with the criminal justice system, right? So that's, that's a part of it. 
This this to me really really hit me as as crucial. I mean, I, I hear you saying that there, there's been this underhanded reversing and weakening of civil rights legislation by the courts. Uh, you say on page 83, my assertion is that by the late 90s, the conservative agenda had become so deeply ingrained in our generation that its arguments seemed like perfectly normal, rational and necessary extensions of democracy itself. Of course, more prisons would protect law abiding citizens. Certainly cutting welfare would stimulate a strong work ethic without question, ending racial preferences would restore equal rights for all citizens. These were artfully framed as common sense solutions that any smart, fair-minded American ought to support now that racism has ended. And if a law or policy happened to disproportionately impact black people, well, at some point, black people just needed to move on from slavery and stand on their own like everybody else. So following on from that quote, and and you you already have have selected the cases I wanted to ask you about, but the last one is the Racial Justice Act of 2009 in North yeah. Carolina. Yeah. I mean, that that was a defining experience for me as a journalist. Um, you know, I, I sort of stumbled into that case through some circuitous means by learning about it. However, I learned about when I when I heard about it, I was blown away. And I was like, why is this not national news? Why, why are people not talking about it? And it was because it was the first statutory law on the books that was designed to circumvent what McCleskey versus Kemp had done because McCleskey versus Kemp had made it ostensibly um, impossible to overcome. So this, the legal hurdles that were put in place to get at the ways in which racial discrimination actually operates within the system. So then what the, what the, what the law does says is that you can actually use statistical evidence because in McCleskey versus Kemp, you know, thanks to again, I talk about I talk bad about Justice Scalia in here for good reason, because I think Scalia has been it was an incredible. He was an archetype of this this, this sort of project to, to really dismantle and discredit all of the gains that had been made in the civil rights era. He was very much a tool in that enterprise. And it's not. And that's why Amy Comey Barrett is so dangerous in that regard, because she's purely an acolyte of, of a Scalia. But ultimately, Scalia makes he's the deciding vote. And I even write about how there's a memo that, that surfaces after Thurgood Marshall's death in which he ultimately says, I agree with this decision. I agree that there's discrimination here, but we can't do anything about it. So I'm going to side with the majority here. Right. That is a freaking crazy thing to think that a, so that he's going to that a Supreme Court justice is going to say nothing we can do about racism. So I'm just going to side with it. So the Racial Justice Act said, you know what? We're going to create a state law that says McCleskey does not hold here. You can use statistical evidence to demonstrate that there is a pattern or practice of discrimination taking place. And matter of fact, not only can you use it to demonstrate it wasn't, you don't even have to find the specific evidence of in your case. All you need to really, in order to be able to get a rehearing, all you need to be able to demonstrate that there was a pattern in the state, in the county, or in the court over a 10-year period during which you were convicted. This is profound, right? Because it opens the opportunity, opens the space for us to begin to look at the charging and the, the whole process. Because I look at, they're called decision points. Every decision these, are, point. these are death penalty cases. For, all just, I'm right. sorry, I should yeah. clarify. So thank you yeah. for bringing that in. This is all death penalty. And that's the other thing about it. It wasn't like they were looking at every single criminal justice, every single case. It was purely people who were on death row. And we were asking, at, at a minimum, we should know that racism was not part of their decision. That's all we were saying. At a minimum, before we kill somebody, 
We should at least be really sure that we did not, we're not killing them because of racism. And what we found in that case was, in that trial was, despite, again, another launch, another regression analysis that demonstrated over a 20 year period, you could find that black folks were being excluded from juries, that black, uh, black um, people who were arrested who were African American were more likely to be charged and later convicted by. You saw it all there. You still had this pushback and ultimately defanging of the law three years later. And it was a constant litigation because the conservative district attorneys throughout the state of North Carolina just couldn't possibly deal with this pop, this reality. It reminds me, you quote very powerfully James Baldwin saying, you must understand that in the attempt to correct so many generations of bad faith and cruelty when it is operating not only in the classroom, but in society, you will meet the most fantastic, the most brutal, and the most determined resistance. There's no point in pretending that this won't happen. And I, I wanted, I wanted, to, I wanted to 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 quote that and bring also uh, the subject of your. I don't know if it's a transition or at least a, a career shift from law to diversity, equity, and inclusivity training yeah. uh, into the conversation, and to requote this line that I cited before. Uh, I write the letters herein to my white male friends because you are everyone's target, but no one's focus. Because um, what you describe so eloquently is that uh, after working for many years in this training space, you suddenly see your economic star shoot up because uh, George Floyd is murdered. And so in June 2020, your your phone is blowing up uh, and... Everybody wants to be your focus. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I wanted to talk about the difference between the target and the focus a little bit and, and ask you, first of all, if you can say a little bit more about that. There's a lot of fear that, is associated, that, 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 that white men, specifically white men in power, are able to just instill on the larger sort of society more broadly just by virtue of the fact that there's so much power and privilege associated with that, and it is that that white men hold in this society, and I think that I don't necessarily feel intimidated by that, largely because my entire experience has been in classrooms, on playing fields, and having deep and close relationships with white men. But I think, though, I think the the sort of awe that and the fear that they contend that that white men, and whether it's fear that dim, that that shows up as a sort of awe relative, you know, Elon Musk or this, the the awe of Jeff Bezos, like there's a kind of awe that even that men and white men in power that who have wealth inspire, um, such that when we get in these conversations around race, we t- I, I've seen it happen too. There's a need to coddle. There's a need to hold their hand. There's a need to let folks know it's okay. We don't really mean you. You're not that like, not you, you know, you're separate, you're different. And because there's a recognition that to stay in good favor with these, with these white men is to, is to be able to continue to have access to resources, opportunities, and quite frankly, survival, which is very real. You know, the fact that matter is that people have historically had to moderate and modulate their behavior around white men because white men in the room have tended to have the power. I see it all the time when the CEO walks in the room, everybody just sort of like, you know, kind of gets in line. They no longer speak that whatever ideas they were sharing before, they kind of like wait for that CEO to articulate and then they might. So what I wanted to do was was not was to not do that, was to not allow when it's not 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 to let this this I, I want everybody to read this book. But I didn't I wanted to say 
you know, I know, you know, I could talk to white women about this. I could talk to many different people about this, but I wanted to really have this conversation with people who I had a lifetime relationship with, which is white men. And meaning like Derek and I, you know, he's one example of this is, you know, he can tell you this is 30 years. This isn't like we just became cool and we kind of have a superficial relationship. You know, this is somebody who was a best man at my wedding, somebody who I have. So therefore I feel like if I can, if anybody can have these kinds of conversations, it's gotta be people like myself who've had a lifetime of intimate, deep, and I think intellectual and personal relationships. So that's why it got, I got to focus here. I got well, Can I just ask one, one thing, Matthew? Yeah. I, I found myself curious just at, at one point, Dax, about the Scalia stuff, because mm-hmm. it's, it sounded like you were, you were sort of imagining a reader who, who sees Scalia as some kind of hero. Yeah. And I'm wondering how many people who, who you think are actually going to, and, and, and this, I'm actually, I'm genuinely asking this because I don't know. I don't know enough about this culture, even though I've lived here for some decades. Um, how many people who would be moved to read this book do you think would see Scalia in a, I think you said you tend to valorize him. I, well, I guess maybe this is, this is my own little sort of like, uh, you know, my, my parochial at world law. Like he is a hero in the legal field. In the uh, legal world. He is a heroic figure. And that's largely because of his originalist, because for those, for those Americans who are really ascribed to the originalist approach to reading the constitution, which is to say, we should not in any way interpret, we should not apply a modern context or our sort of his, any kind of historicity working. We should focus on what was intended by the founding, not the founders, and we should follow them. When we, people really, and, and that's why I go back to Amy Comey Barrett being such a significant sort of decision. It was a very intentional, symbolic decision to have some, to have her become the most recent Supreme Court justice. And it was a very intentional linkage to her as a acolyte of, of a Justice Scalia, because there's, a, an, there's an idea that exists in our society that, this, that the Constitution is sacrosanct. And that we should only look to interpret it in the light of the ways in which these brilliant people who were clearly bestowed upon with genius by the God shining down on them had at this one moment in time. And that, so that's the sort of disruptive. And, and to some extent, to answer more plainly, at some point, you got to kind of like think about who you got to like almost create. An, yeah. You have to create yeah. your audience in some fictional in some way. So mm-hmm. that's, you know. Yeah. It's a little inside baseball, a little poly, a little inside baseball happening in that com- in that conversation. Gotcha. Admittedly, gotcha. well, I I wanted to ask further about that. That in you, I mean, you have lifelong friends like Derek, but then also you're addressing the public, and you know you you have to in an epistolary book like this imagine your way into some generic white males inner life, but without stereotyping, without pandering. So when you close your eyes and feel your way into the you, into the second person that you're addressing, conditioned by all the historical realities that you describe, like what are the first things that come to mind? Mm. Well, I will say this. I actually had at different points in different letters, there were somebody in mind. Oh yeah, it was a conversation that I might have had with this with this. With, with, with. So, right. like for instance, the culture of charity conversation for me, that was like a lot. There's been a lot of, you know, people I interacted with in the nonprofit sector who I think they comprise sort of the, the sort of um, collective of that. That is that is the, that I think is 
the the intended audience or the intended per, the, the group to whom I'm. And so there's an archetype that I'm probably working with in that. Similarly, when the culture of disbelief chapter, because it's so it, it intersects with the criminal justice system, I'm typically and that I would say I'm talking to people who are interacting with in some way, shape or form the justice system, whether that's police, law enforcement, whether it's prosecutors, judges. So I'm, that becomes the audience. And then when right. I think the, the, sort of the, the culture of, expro, of, of expropriation chapter, that is really me talking to, you know, a lot of a lot of people who move to these cities and just sort of love the idea of the urbanized landscape and not don't really want to have to sort of trouble themselves with the fact of which is what it had to happen in order for this place to feel so cheap and undervalued for you to be able to live in and get this great deal. So there were different audiences of people, I think, who comprise sort of a, co- a collective for that particular story or particular letter. You know, on that point, I just want to quote you here again. Gentrification, you write, is part of a tradition of rapacious expansionism and extermination inextricably linked to that legacy of violence and domination. Uh, Generations of forcible property seizure has numbed and blinded white people to the deep historical harm that their fellow citizens of color experience whenever yet another space they occupy is taken away. It has made well-intended white people complicit in this tradition of organized theft. Collectively, I call this the culture of expropriation, and it is another way in which racism harms white people. Like, where you end that paragraph is like... You, you, the, you flip upside down somehow because what you're, I think, and going back to touring your, your, your friends' houses when you're a kid, it's like you, somehow there are these historical economic forces that most individuals are blind to that in following their own better stars and the, 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 you know, and, and they want, they want the better school and they want the loft apartment and shit like that, that they move towards, they move towards the gem, they move towards the shiny thing. Uh, and, and, but, but you end the paragraph by saying, and this is another way in which racism harms people, white people. And I'm like, yeah, because it's really weird to wind up in a city that is an ersatz city. It's really strange to wind up, uh, in a place that pretends to be, uh, the South side of Boston. It's a really weird thing to wind up in this, uh, renovated series of warehouses that became available because of like, you know, free trade agreements in the 1980s. It's really weird to basically live in a plastic life and to think that you're happy and to think that, uh, you're, you're so, so it's well, or to th- think also that you're in, you're in an edgy fun diverse yeah no no right no no you're you're just you're just collecting the spoils of 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 you know structural inequality right right to me that's the warping effect of is that it is the numbing component to it right like it actually numbs you to the thing that had to happen for all that and you see it around you and you walk around and you just and you say things like and i say and people should know i'm writing in that, even in that story, I'm talking about myself as somewhat of a participant. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I'm not writing as if I did not actually participate in, to the extent that I, as a black middle class person, would participate in taking land. So that's what I want to be clear. This is not me on high saying I figured it all out, as I hope you encounter throughout the book, is there are experiences. I try to explore my own gaps and my own awakenings to understand they were warping me. That was having an effect on my, on me as well. If I can name one aspect of the book that I think is most powerful, actually, it's that ability to be basically a spirit walker between those two worlds, because I, I think it lends incredible credibility to uh, your historical 
economic political analysis. And you're, you're able to speak really frankly across this line that I don't think I, 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 I'm not really seeing in many other places, if at all. So, so I just want to, I want to acknowledge that. Yeah. Lifetime. It's a lifetime of, yeah. I mean, it's a lifetime of struggles, a lifetime of, of having to come to reckon a lifetime of like, this is, and I've heard that multiple times now, and I take it really, really, I'm appreciative of the fact that I am someone who seems to be able to communicate in a way that people can hear it and feel accountable at the same time, hear it and feel like, wow, this person's challenging me. I also feel like this person is not coming from a place of judgment in a place of like, um, of unwillingness to hear. Like, I just don't want that. Cause I feel like we have enough of that in our society. Frankly, I just feel like we have a lot of, of finger pointing without really taking into consideration the ways in which and the extent to which we all participate. Like if you live in America, you're part of capitalism. Right. If you live in America, you are part of some of these systems. And so we have to have a little humility here to recognize that we are waiting our way through it. And that's what I wanted to say. Yes. And and if structural racism puts you into a gentrified neighborhood where you have depoliticized yourself and the only thing that you can do is chase like a better fucking coffee or create more hipster food places or like like just just consume more and better and more virtuously and have this kind of like, I don't know, uh, um, fiction of history about it. Uh, th- this is not pleasure. It's not, it's not happiness. Uh, and it's not communication. Why don't we talk a little bit about, about the, the critical race theory, uh, yeah. sort of controversy that's happening. This, this culture war football that's being tossed around right now. Uh, I have, I just started to have a hunch in the last couple of days, and maybe that's cause I'm slow on the uptake that this is a, this is a wonderful smokescreen for all of the, uh, voters rights that are being, uh, taken away systematically across different States. But, it, it, there, the, I saw something yesterday that said in the last six weeks or something, Fox News had used the the term critical race theory something like three hundred and fifty times. Yeah, that it's it's definitely the new bogeyman. Uh, what fr- from your point of view, Dax? Like, what's going on with that? Do do you want to uh, uh, sort of enlighten us as to what critical race theory is and isn't? It's interesting because as I talk about in the book and I write about, like for instance. Um, Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. Yeah. And I write about that with this sort of notion, because that was a precursor to this very kind of moment where he was arguing against this sort of multicultural education and ostensibly no, arguing for the so the return to our focus on Western civilization and the greatness that it actually created. So it's a progenitor to the same, to this sort of same kind of argument that's being framed. And I, and I talk about in that book, and I talk about in the book how George... H.W. Bush adopted the framing of the political correctness that was first articulated in, by Alan Bloom in 87. He, in 1991, he's delivering a, the commencement address to the University of Michigan. And it's the first time that it's actually noted in public that it's that firm, that term politically correct. is, And it's a complete straw man argument even then. Like it's not actually based on a legitimate um, sort of discourse that had been taking place. It's, it was a fictionalized debate that then became a legitimate debate in our, around, around these sorts of things. So I just would suggest at the outset with any kind of critical race theory conversation that there's history for this, there's precedent for this. And let's be clear that this isn't part, this is part of a larger project that is, that is whether it's heritage, whether it's, you know, American enterprise, whether it's the Manhattan, like there's a whole bunch of these think tanks who sit or whose people spend these ideas for a living. I started to see the critical race argument, the argument started last last late last summer 
it was the National Review started first. National Review is often like a bellwether for where these conversations are going to go. And you started to see the headlines back last August, last September. The first thing they started to do was question this idea of the reality of systemic racism. So that's part of their first process. Layer one of the project is undermine the legitimacy of, of, of systemic racism as a legitimate form. So you started to see headlines in the National Review that were questioning it, questioning it. And then you see other places like Reason.com, like places that have presented themselves both as national publications and as, quote unquote, unbiased publications that are, quote unquote, presenting factual information or at least trying to disabuse people of the rhetoric and the ideological nonsense and mumbo jumbo that is permeating our atmosphere. So the, throughout and of course, Donald Trump's, you know, his his elevation of this this sort of, again, this the. The, the, the whatever the policy was, the, the order, executive order he signed, that was part of it. Well, probably just just after seeing Rufo on, on Fox News, he said, oh, I got to do something right. I mean, this is exactly what, you know, happens. This is, and, they, and that's the I mean, these these think tanks love it because they have them. They're like a main line to the ideas that end up becoming mainstreamed. I mean, they, they don't even have to be highly funded and sort of deeply and sort of broad. Like they don't need, like I think about the left's infrastructure around sort of progressive politics and the sort of in level of amount of investment that goes into a sort of uh, movements for whether it's democratic voting rights or whatever you call it. The, the, the right does not need, they have, they have, they, they have a few think tanks, mm-hmm. they pour a bunch of money into them mm-hmm. and they let it rip. Like, and they have a, a well-constructed echo chamber. Yeah. And they have a well-constructed e- echo chamber, right? So they, they don't need to have this larger sort of apparatus that, that is built around sort of, you know, to actually sustain this. So I just would suggest, and I just think that like, it is deeply troubling to watch this. I was in Loudoun County two weeks ago myself. In Loudoun County, I think some of you might know, because that was the latest, that was, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a big school board fight that came that was happening out there. And it just happened, I was, a complete coincidence, my wife and I were in Loudoun County for a couple of days. And I remember driving along, I was, we went for a drive. We were staying at this resort, we went for a drive. And I ended up on this highway that was, right in, that was named after, a, still named after a Confederate, um, a Confederate officer. And it was along this, it was like the Civil War Trail. That's what they define it as. This is the Civil War Trail. Mind you, these are all just Confederate sites. That's all just the sites. But the one that caught my attention was, it was called Mount Defiance. And Mount Defiance was, and, and let's just, this exactly, your eyes bubble up, but this isn't even a mountain. This is a rolling hill that they have renamed a mountain. And it, and it marks the defeat, yet a, a defeat. It actually is a marker of a loss in the Confederates. You know, and the only victory, the Pyrrhic victory that, that, of that moment was Robert, Lee, Robert E. Lee was able to get, you know, to get his army farther north so that they could come up with some kind of some kind of so it wasn't as if there was a win it was a loss but they call it mount defiance because there's such um there's there's such a history and a richness of the tradition of resistance and there's such glory that people have in these loss in these sort of lost causes so to call it mount defiance to me, that sort of spe- that says a lot about the fact that Loudoun County is a spy- was a place in space where we're seeing the pushback for cr- cr- of, of CRT. And it helps frame for me an understanding of what really this is about is fundamentally, ideolo- ideologically, these, these people don't want anybody putting any ideas on them that they didn't concoct for themselves. And it's fundamentally about that. And that's I see it over and over again. So I hate the fact that we have to put so much time, effort, and energy yeah. into it because it's not a legitimate actual discourse, but it nevertheless has to happen that we talk, we talk about this stuff on some level. It seems to me highly unlikely that actual critical race theory is being taught to kids in, in elementary school or high school, right? Highly, not only highly unlikely, but I think about, go back to my experience. So what you have is kids like me 
who are in a classroom where you have teachers who have not themselves been in any way made aware of, of race and racialization, how they've been racialized in their own history. So therefore, there's an inability to teach me. So what I struggle with so much is the hypocrisy around this sort of, you know, this 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 drum beating argument is that you didn't give a sh- excuse me, you didn't give a shit. When my when when kids like me were in class in school, we weren't getting any bit of the history that we needed. And then we were sort of having our experience completely erased from the narrative. No one cared then. What it says it suggests to me furthermore is just that there's an idea still of who American is, who has an who has a right to tell the story, to hold the story and to be the shaper of the story. So I I'm I very I do not to your point, I, I know that these folks don't know what they're talking about when it comes to critical race theory, because all the critical race theory is trying to do is to give us some language and some lenses to understand the way systems have operated. It uses all it uses facts, data, history, all the things that are necessary, part of the scientific and scientific and rational analysis to draw conclusions that can be helpful and supportive of us being able to deconstruct some of what we're experiencing as our current reality. Healthcare system. It is very evident that the healthcare system was it was a a racialized healthcare system here in D.C. They had to build a hospital because, you know, Civil War veterans could not go to a hospital. They had to build a Navy hospital for them because they couldn't go to any other hospital in D.C. That is a fact. That is not someone that's not propaganda. Right. And it is also not. and And I've been telling this story for the last couple of nights because. Two nights ago, my wife and I had an emergency at home and she was going through, she was had, she had an emergency situation. We had to call, you know, paramedics to the house the night before the book comes out. We're going through this. Oh my God. Um, she's an act. She's in excruciating pain. This is a young black woman, excruciating pain. And I watched the, I watched the ER, the, 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 these paramedics come in the house. They're very casual about it. They don't really seem to understand. They keep trying to minimize the pain that she's experiencing. They keep saying, questioning the pain. I'm watching it. I call her doctor and I say, she's having extreme pain right now. He's like, well, what you need to do tomorrow is, I'm like, dude, she's sick now. We go to the ER room. They're like casual about it. You're not really in pain. And I'm like, this is what happens to black folks all the time. And to me, we're trying to, by, by, by developing a nuanced and sophisticated analysis of systems, we can begin to understand how systems have been designed. And yes, people participate in those systems, but the systems design is actually the problem because the paramedics in that moment were saying to us, we can't do anything because the system says we can't do anything. But my wife is sitting here in excruciating pain and she's telling you she cannot, she thinks she's going to die right now. And you're like, well, you know, I don't, but it's just to me, like, it's, it's, it's hard for me to deconstruct and to separate my personal from this sort of. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fucking awful. And I hope she's okay. She is. And I just, I only share that story because Mm -hmm. she's okay. I would not Mm -hmm. be sharing that. She is okay. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. Dax, you write, um, I do not pretend to think what awaits you will be easy. You're addressing your white male friends here. You write, I know that it will be difficult to exhume the racist ideas you have absorbed, but the culture of disbelief has come at a steep cost to both of us. If you ask me the harm that white disbelief does to you, it is this. It corrupts your relationship with your dignity. It alienates you from your nature. It turns you into your own worst enemy. And a little bit later, you write, am I doing all of this work? And I should just let the listeners know that there, there is so much Socratic 
wonderful Socratic prompting in this book, these questions that come. Are you, am I doing all of this work because I am afraid of losing power and legitimacy, because I am fearful of being exposed or called out? Or am I doing this because I am truly ready to embrace what's next, even if it remains unclear to me? And this is where I want to come back to what I said at the beginning, which is that without using the theological reference points that are so often embedded within black liberation literature, it really feels like there is a subtle and yet persistent spiritual call or appeal to the development of structural awareness, uh, to the development of a sense of, of interdependence, so that you're, you, the person that you're writing to can actually adopt a mature position in the world, not only towards racism, but towards the fact that they are actually responsible, they come from somewhere, uh, they depend on other people, uh, and they are responsible for care. Um, what's, what's, your, what's your inspiration been for that theme? I think you named it, you know, in many ways, even in a secular sense, I was raised with certain, um, in, a, in a tradition, even, even if it didn't have to be housed within a sort of um, physical face place of worship, it was deeply intertwined with um, liberation theology and the belief that um, in many ways, like liberation isn't necessarily tied to just this notion that we have of freedom, which is a freedom cons to consume in this country. That's, that's kind of how we understand freedom. But this idea of um, liberation as, a, as, as being able to sort of have a self-determining and, you know, a self-determining, um, to have self-determination. And so even that notion, which you, which you just quoted for me was, was really helpful to hear back because it made me, brought me back to this idea of the corruption of one's relationship to one's own dignity in the specific ways in which I was thinking about that. And I often find myself thinking about that is that I watch sometimes white people go through, um, like acts of contortion in order to rationalize what is very obviously something that is racist, meaning like they want it to be everything other than what it is. Like, oh no, it was not that. It was really this, it was that. And I'm like, I understand why you're doing this because this is a person you love and you don't want to have to deal with the fact that the person that you love maybe is really deeply, is deeply struggling or deeply, is a deeply racist person, which I saw happen with a young man. And I write about that in the story, like watching after the Breonna, Breonna Taylor decision. And I was working with a group of people and this young man, I watched his skin just like change colors because he was saying, and he couldn't even look me in the eyes. And he was like, I have people in my life who I know I love, but I know that they just have a very different opinion about everything that's happening right now. And I, and I just think that's what it, what it's doing to him in that moment. He knows what's right. He has a, he knows what's right, but he also loves his family members. He loves these cousins or whoever it is, and he can't reconcile these things. And to me, that is a harm. That is crazy. Like for you to not be able to live in, in sort of in wholeness with yourself, for you to have to have a divided self so that you can rationalize and keep loving people that you know, hold malice in their heart or hold emptiness in their heart or hold just deep hatred in their heart. And it's irrational. I feel for you that you have to like find some way to reconcile that and hold those people and still try to move through the world. That to me feels like a hell of a weight. That feels like a hell of a weight to have to walk around with, to know like my mom is this way or my grandmother or my grandfather and they have these beliefs and I, and I can't change them, but I can't leave them, but I can't change them. That's, 
I'm sorry. I don't I don't want that. I don't wish that on anybody. That's existential angst to the, you know, to just have to live with and wake up with. To know that when you're looking at me, you know that as much as you care and you want and you're in relationship to me, if your friends or your family were to see you right now, they would put you in a that would put you in a compromised place because then it would be like you'd have to make a decision at that point. And so therefore some you actually want this relationship that you have with me to be isolated, to not be visibilized like to be held like in sort of dark shadows because you don't want it to be public because then you have to deal with the fact of your family will ask, are you a, a traitor to us? Are you tra-? Like, this is some deep shit, but this is what our legacy has done. And it's constantly divided. It doesn't just divide us, it divides souls, you know? And so I'm helping, I want people to have to live in some more in better alignment with and better relationship with themselves. And I just definitely believe that this thing that we're dealing with in this country called racism, which is tribalism of another name, is at the crux of our inability to have a sort of holistic, reconciled relationship with one another and ourselves. 